We're in this series, What Do Non-Christians Think About Christianity? We're getting into the heart of it. Last week was an intro. Let's move forward a little bit. I want to do it in a little bit of prayer to start because I want to make sure we have the right spirit. We're going to be spending a few weeks really going after some things in the church, but I want to do it out of a, uh, a spirit in that's in the right place, a spirit that is not overly critical but rightfully looking at the issues that we should be talking about. So let's, uh, let's pray for just a moment. Lord, it would be easy to sensationalize this topic and make much of it, but we know that it's near and dear to your heart that people come to know you. And if we are making it more difficult with our attitude, Lord, in any way, would you expose that to us today? Can we come to this, Lord, with an open mind, both about the things that we do And even, Lord, where we think we don't do certain things, shine your light into our hearts. Pray this in your name. Amen. If you remember from last week, we talked about why are we doing this series. A couple of reasons. One is, if we're going to reach the people that are outside of Christianity, we need to understand what they see. How they perceive Christianity. Number two, we need to confront the ways in which we're making it harder for people to come to Jesus. You're going to hear a lot in the next couple of weeks that there are times when Christianity and Christians get in the way of people coming to Christ. And that's weird that that's happening, but we need to address it. And lastly, of course, by looking and learning about these people that are a little bit skeptical, we can learn more about ourselves, and hopefully that's one thing that will happen regardless. Two caveats I want to give you real fast. Number one The things we're talking about in here for the next few weeks are going to be primarily directed at the American church because some of these things probably don't apply so much outside. So I want to keep that in mind, that we're not trying to generalize to worldwide Christianity, but since we live in this country and we're called the the mission field in this country as well, that's one of the things we're doing. The second thing I just want to highlight is tonight we're going to start talking about some things where you might say, you know, that doesn't really apply to me. We're talking about some critiques of Christianity where it may apply sometimes more to the older generation. And you might be tempted to check out and go, you know what, I'm not like that at all. Check that for a moment, because sometimes we're more like that. And also, there's still something for us to learn, even when we see that people within the church, maybe they're not acting the same way that we do at a younger age. But just hang on to that. I'm going to address that at the end today. A couple statistics from last week I want to remind you of. Just over 10 years ago, 85% of younger non-Christians had a favorable impression of Christians and Christianity. Today, that slid to 38%. That's a dramatic change. We are looking at that from last week and tracking it. Here's some other things that we looked at statistically. Some of the negative attitudes that respondents responded to, just so that you can refresh your memory a little bit. Some of the things we hit on was this feeling of anti-homosexuality and judgmentalism, a hypocrisy, old-fashioned attitudes. We also saw that Christians themselves admitted that some of these attitudes pervaded the church as well, and they were concerned about it. So keep those in mind, because we're going to start. What we're going to be doing over the next few weeks is this. Tonight, we're going to be talking about the way in which we're sheltered. That was one of the responses on the surveys, that we're a little too sheltered as Christians. Then over the next couple of weeks, we're going to take on these other topics about us being hypocritical and judgmental, too political, anti-homosexual, arrogant and fundamentalist, and then spend some time being too focused on decision-making and for salvation, we mean there, and also the way we see the church. 
So we're going to spend a little bit of time at the end maybe about how to do church, how to be church, as opposed to just how to go to church. So that's kind of where we're going, a little bit of an outline for you of what's ahead. Let's kind of dive into a little bit of this isolationism that we seem to foster in the church, the Christian bubble. You guys know that this is not a subject that has gone unnoticed at Exodus. If you look at our banner over there, over here, think outside the bubble has been our motto for quite a while. Some people ask us, why is your, what is that guy called, a mascot? Why is your mascot the spaceman, right? Why is he the mascot for Exodus? Because the image we always had was this Christian wearing a spacesuit walking out into the regular world because there wasn't any Christian air to breathe. They were outside the bubble. That was the whole idea of where we got the spaceman idea, that so many Christians feel like they have to do all this stuff just to be able to go in the outside world. Or, more sadly, when Christians finally step out of the bubble sometimes, they suffocate because they realize the world isn't like the bubble they're in. And this is the part where some of you are like, that's not me. I'm not in the Christian bubble. I'm way outside of it. Good, I'll get to you at the end. (laughs) Hang in there. I know this group, just by the nature of the way we do things, some of you are like, that's not me. I'm not, no, I'm no spacesuit, you know. I'm naked. Uh, We'll talk about that, all right? (laughs) So our motto has always been, think outside the bubble. Tonight, we're going to be talking about how did we ever get in the bubble in the first place. Let's first do a little shopping. Let's do a little shopping. This week, I decided to take a little bit of a tour of some of the fine offerings that people have for Christians. So just a couple items that I was looking for, I was thinking of maybe to get a gift for somebody. So here's some things I found uniquely for Christian. Here's a set of Christian knives, all right? Now, if you can't see it, somewhere down there, there's a little Christian fish on the bottom of the, whatever that knife block is called. So if you know anybody who needs a knife set, there's some Christian knives. Here's a Christian bread thing where you cut the bread. The verse on there says, of course, something about our daily bread, you know? So you now you got a little bread board, you know? Give us this day our daily bread. Of course, you got a nice piece of bread right there. Ready for communion, all right? Here's some things if you want your bed adorned. Little... This is from the Three Crosses collection. You'll notice that there's three crosses everywhere. And if you really want to go all out, here's the matching shower curtain to go with it so that you could have the full collection. In case you're entertaining, here's a little bit of a Bible verse entertainment set. This is a little serving platter with the believe. Everything is possible for those who believe. I should have put the prices up, apparently. One of the things I was curious about this belief plate, believe everything is possible for those who believe, I was wondering what Bible verse is that? I, I, didn't, I don't remember that one in the Bible, and I don't see a citation because I don't think they have one. So anyway, there's the bad theology serving platter. Here's the plates that go with it. And of course, some coffee mugs for the whole kitchen set. Again, look, I'm doing a good color scheme for you, so if you want me to come over and design your house. Here are some uh, board games. This is the... Uh, Life of Christ board game. If you're into video games, here is a great Christian video game that you can play. It looks like one of those uh, first-person games. I don't know. I, it didn't show us any scenes from the inside of whether what you're doing to people. Maybe you're running around a maze and reading the Bible to people. I have no idea. There's the Amen CD-ROM version of a card-playing game. And my favorite is Missionary Conquest. Yeah. <laughs> 
Now, when we were at the retreat, when we were at the retreat, some of you were playing Risk and you were getting in a very unchristian attitude about the way you played the game. But can I point out that there's nothing that seems more offensive to non-Christian culture than calling your game Missionary Conquest, right? Like, we didn't learn from all the colonial behavior of Christians that came before us that now we have to have a game about where we're going to military. I don't even know. Are they little missionary military guys? They take over the globe for Jesus. Yes. And I, I think there might be dice. I, if there's dice, I don't know how that's Christian. That's more casting of lots. All right, let's go on. There's more. Here, for your child, this is a little rocking chair for your child. This is the Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. If you didn't notice, there's a little Bible down there so that your child can open up that big, huge Bible right there while they're sitting in the rocking chair and learn some verses, okay? Now, Christian parents know that you have to follow the Old Testament standard of not, you know, sparing the rod. But they have this timeout chair for children. <laughs> I don't know, but it has a little thing again, not a biblical verse, but certainly sold in Christian stores near you. Right? No, that one doesn't. Apparently, when you're in timeout, you can't read the Bible. Unbelievable. Then, of course, you've got scripture candy bars, complete with Jesus as a shepherd holding a little sheep and a bunch of who knows what verses on the back. you got these little, little chocolates in the wrappers here with little Bible verses on them. You know what? If the mind can conceive it, it's in a Christian bookstore. i got to tell you. They've got guitar picks that I got for Cody the other day. They say, pick for Jesus, or pick Jesus. That's what it is, pick Jesus, little guitar picks. <laughs> They had all sorts of stuff. They have the scripture mints. You know, this is crazy. I don't know if you'll recognize this by looking at it. You're probably just looking at it. It looks maybe like a scarf. But no, this is the official prayer of Jabez Hebrew prayer shawl. That's what it's called. The Hebrew prayer shawl. Yep, so you can pray the prayer of Jabez and then read that whole book if you're into that theology. And put the shawl on while you do it because that will give you extra measure of Belief for all you Christian Zionists, if you know what that is. All right. If you want some artwork for the wall, here's a nice one. Having problems? It's simple. What would Jesus do? That's it. If you put that up, people will come to the Lord just because they read it. Here's some popular t-shirts on a Christian bookstore site. My victory lane is in heaven. Reaches out to rednecks, NASCAR fans, and Christians all at the same time. All in one. You got them. You can hit them. I mean, that way you're pleasing everybody at the track. Here's another one. Jesus loves USA with the USA of Jesus saves, you know, all kind of little, little theology there. God bless America and all the Americans who think Jesus preordained America. How about this one? Specific to a state. Proud to be a Christian from Texas. You know, I just like seeing the words proud and Christian next to each other. Like, isn't that the whole point? Like, isn't our pride what's getting in the way? How about this one? Game over. Game over, we win. Yeah, there's no them and us mentality in this one, isn't there? Game over, we win. Yeah, I mean, where do Christians get off with all this pride? You know, are they cheering a, a team? Is this a sports match? 
Game over? We win? Who exactly are they talking to? How about this one? Don't believe in hell? It's still there. You're still going. <laughs> and then we wonder why in the surveys it shows up that we're judgmental. Okay, look, this is a thinking group. Yes, these are extreme examples. But I did. I only had to go to two stores on the web to get them. I wasn't shopping all day. I was just looking, just clicking. I mean, I just I said, forget it. There's only so much I can do in one night. There's just too many things. So I know you're going to push back a little bit and say, all right, this is not anybody in this group. I hope not. I hope not. But it is people who have the same diploma. Here's something else. I can anticipate this from somebody. Hey, what about if you're into anything else? I mean, why not have, there's pillows and little plates and all this stuff on these sites. And I started thinking, you know, some people are into dogs. Like maybe they have dog stuff all over the house. Some people are into like trees and they have little pictures of trees everywhere. Yeah, maybe we're into Christianity. But how far in are we to get to this point? That's really what we're critiquing tonight. I want you to contrast everything we just looked at with what's really going on in our society. I want you to think about for a moment what's happening in our society. Right now, there's a greater awareness of global issues and poverty. You guys have greater access to technology, that's true, but you have access to an unfiltered world. You see and hear everything across the world almost instantaneously. You're aware of what's going on. Crime is more prevalent. Society seems to be more cynical. Some statistics that people endure every day in America, just as example. One-third of kids in America are born out of wedlock. Sexually explicit content, pornography, it's pretty mainstream among young people. 75% of teens and young adults having premarital sex. Average age person is losing their virginity is 15. 20% of teens and young adults have used drugs. Profanity is a norm and a way of expression in our culture. Why am I raising these? Not for shock value, just say, you contrast that silly world we just looked at with where people really are and what they really see. And we start to look goofy. We start to look separated, segregated, sheltered from what's really going on. Now you guys know what's going on because you're in that age. You see it. But seeing it and being part of it or being in it and around it sometimes might be two different things in the church. If you don't hear a single thing I say tonight, I want you to hear this phrase. We as Christians are called to be cross-cultural. We are to cross cultures and cross lands, cross countries, cross divides, cross whatever it takes to bring the gospel message to people, to bring them into real Christian community, to bring them into the kingdom that exists now on earth. I know a lot of times when we talk about crossing cultures for missionaries, what we're thinking of is we're trying to bring them into the kingdom yet to come, and that's true too but we're supposed to be bringing people into the kingdom that's part here now. The kingdom of grace and living in this world and doing what Jesus commands and his priorities now. So we're called to be cross-cultural and yet most of the time Christians are subcultural. We live in our own subcultures. Again, I know some of you are like, not me. Okay, like I said, we'll get to you in the end. But some of us start to live in subcultural lives. It's okay to have fellowship. In fact, it's biblical. We should have true biblical community together, but that's not the same thing as being sheltered. 
Yes, we're supposed to have fellowship, but it's not the same thing as being subcultural where every single thing around us belongs to this Christian culture that we've invented and we live in, where we've separated ourselves. Fellowship is not the same thing as fearing the outside world or judging it. That's not what we were called to do. You know, if you picture this whole bubble, it's just an example, but you picture the bubble, it's like we're inside. We're like, now the outside world can't get to us. But doesn't that mean by definition that we can't get to the outside world? We were never meant to be separated in that way. So how do we get sheltered like this? How does it happen? How does it happen for Christians in Christianity? I want to borrow a little bit from Dan Kimball because he gives these four steps that it happens, and I think it's dead on right. That these, a lot of people go through these four steps. The first one is we become Christians. There's nothing wrong with that. Somewhere along the line, we become Christians. We're excited. We're telling people about what's happening to us. There's a true change. It's good. That's step one. Step two, we become part of church life. We start to figure out all the things that we were going through before and shedding some of those things. You might hear people say this, for example, to a new believer, you might say, you know, maybe you should be careful about hanging out with some of your older friends before you slip into bad habits. You've heard that said? Yeah. Maybe we're afraid that if we leave them out there, they're just going to you know, die on the vine or they'll go back to their old ways. And that's sometimes justified. But listen to our language. We're trying to bring them in, which is good, but into what? Is our community still active and interactive with the outside world, or is it insular? Because if we're bringing them in, then it's just insular. But sometimes that church life is helpful. Plugging people into the whole body of Christ and making them an active member of that. Then we become part of the Christian bubble. We start to get closer and closer to it. In fact, I want to read what Dan Kibble actually wrote. It's one paragraph about what it means to get into the Christian bubble. He says, during this phase, we stop praying daily for those who don't know Jesus and instead pray for our church's latest building project or latest program. Other than maybe at an office Christmas party where we have to go to, we rarely hang out with non-Christian friends or go to the movie with them. For the most part, only Christians are in our present circle of peers. We begin buying little Christian stickers or put metal fish symbols on our cars and we even have a few Christian t-shirts. We set our radios only to the favorite Christian radio shows, and most of the music we listen to is Christian. We make a trip to the amusement park that has a special Christian day, each year featuring Christian bands. We find ourselves regularly using Christian words and phrases and cliches like backsliding, prayer warrior, quiet time, traveling mercies, I have a check in my spirit. The transformation is complete. We have become citizens of the bubble. And then, he says, part four, we become like Jonah. You guys remember Jonah? He knew about the wickedness of the cities that he was called to prophesy to. But when God told him to go prophesy to those people, he didn't want to. Why did he not want to go? Because he was afraid they would actually repent. He didn't want any part of them. He had the ultimate them and us mentality. He was angry that it might work if God was sending him, that they might actually repent and become part of the thing. 
I think this is real. Some of you may be thinking, but I still have non-Christian friends. Good. That's good. Stay there. Because I want to tell you that this convicted me when I read it because this is a lot of what happened to me. After spending many years away from Christianity, after leaving the ministry, almost 12 years, I had lots of non-Christian friends. In fact, all my friends were non-Christians. Until I came back to the church and started getting more involved. And yes, for a while, that was the part of being part of church life. I had been away for so long that when they sang worship, I'm like, I will come every day if they do this. I was so thirsty for that kind of experience with the Lord. I'd been in the desert for 12 years. I couldn't believe it. That's good. But after a while, it was so good that I lost touch with all my non-Christian friends and surrounded myself completely with Christians. Dan asked people, like, what did you do on Friday night? What did you do on Saturday night? Who do you spend time with? Started asking people, like, who do you spend time with? How many of them are non-Christians on a regular basis? Now, for us, I know, we're a younger crowd. Maybe it happens more often. But the statistic in the church is within two years of becoming a Christian, you no longer have any non-Christian friends. That's the statistic for adults. So how are they going to reach out to anybody? All right, let's take a break for a second and hear from you. Jump in any time. Why are we so sheltered? These are just some explanations. What do you guys think? What's going on? Does this apply to you or no? How many people could say they have at least four or five non-Christian friends that they regularly hang out with? That's good. So why is the church sheltered then? Do you guys feel like you're in danger when you're hanging out with non-Christian friends? Like they're gonna, you're going to get sucked right out of the bubble back out into the air where you can't breathe? I think so. Like if the type of people that they, they're not edifying and all they do is you know, obviously which most non-Christians do, and even some Christians, but if they're out there going, you know, clubbing and partying and sleeping around with every single person, you know, that they meet, and you're hanging around that, then you're going to, and you're not strong, like if you don't have that root, that core root that's going to keep you from that, then you can slip back into that, or you can slip into that. How long do you think you need to be a Christian to be strong enough to reach out to that group? Or do you think that there are just some groups that you or somebody else could never reach out to because that just happens to be your weakness? You know, we know a guy that is a Christian that used to have a drug problem. And uh, he can't be around that at all because he still struggles with it. True. You're right. There's some behaviors. So I think you can exercise some wisdom with that. But like, what about a clubbing lifestyle? It's going to interject my whole thing, which I've interjected before with the whole clubbing lifestyle, because I hear this from Christians all the time, like, oh my God, she went to a club. Like, you can go to a club and dance and not drink and not get drunk and not hook up with people and not, like, no, I'm just saying, like, you can hang out with people that go and be the strong influence in that situation and not be like, God some, forbid, I send into a club. Some people can't. Would Jesus go clubbing? <laughs> He's strong enough. But do you think, but you could say Jesus is strong enough with everything. Should we just leave all evangelism to Jesus and go, hey man, we're weak people. Would Jesus go clubbing? I mean, he might have to change his clothes a little bit, I understand. But I mean, would he, would he go clubbing? Jesus hung out at parties. You know, they didn't have clubs back then. They invited you to a house. It was more of like a house party. And he was there. Now, yes, he's Jesus. But I think he expected us at some point to do it. So I agree with your points about there's some behaviors that will get us into trouble. But somebody's got to reach those people. Now maybe somebody who's never tried drugs or somebody who's never tried alcohol goes after that group because they don't have a problem with it. But 
sometimes somebody who's come out of that scene is the person that they're going to relate to the most. Anyone else? Jump in. Um, I think it too depends on how your friends are responding towards your choices because if you're not strong enough and if they don't respect that choice, that's like if I had a drug problem before and I can't hang out with my non-Christian friends because they do drugs, I say, hey, you know what, I'm just going to go to dinner, but you guys can hang out afterwards, I'll catch up tomorrow or something. And if they're like, well, why not, then you have to kind of see how good are these friends anyways. True. I, I think that's right. But I think that people don't want to feel that you're only going to hang out with them when they're doing something that's approved by you, right? Well, you know, it's because I'm afraid I'm going to slip back into that. It's just not my thing anymore. Like, if they can't respect that. Okay. Philip? I, I can at least speak personally. I know it's probably true for some other people that there's more common ground with Christians. And so you're obviously, you enjoy hanging out with people more than you have more common ground with. Like, I... I can't discuss some things with non-Christians. They don't care about some things that I can discuss with Christians, you know, like because that's important to me, and I enjoy talking about it, and I enjoy like going that. And most non-Christians, there's an issue which it makes it harder to be with those people. I resonate with what you're saying because one of the reasons that I am admitting that I spend too much time around Christians is because I love it. I love the conversations. I love the common life we have. I love the things we have in common, in other words. But that's the part that should convict us because that means that we could, if we just let that go, just live this lifestyle together and leave out all the other people that we never built a relationship with that we could have given a chance. So I just think that that's kind of what we have to consider. You know, I've been in, in, in party situations where it's like they'll assume I'm judging them because I'm not doing some of the things that, you know, like be at the party, even have a drink, you know, whatever, but to not fully go, you know, as, as far or, you know, whatever lines you, you create. So I have seen some where it's like they then assume that I'm judging them even by being there. So sometimes it can kind of backfire even going. I, but I still agree with the general principle of like we need to get we need to get out there. Like, I don't think that's a good excuse for, okay, well, I'm never, you know, hanging out at a party. Because even if you do have the strength, that's not good either. But it's just there can be other obstacles. I think we are fighting a lot of the whole of Christianity and, and some of, uh, of their judgments against Christianity that we then take on implicitly. You absolutely are. Every single time somebody identifies you as a Christian now, because of the things we're identifying, like, there's already like a list of baggage that's attached to you right away. That's just the reality of it. And that's unfortunate, but we got to recognize the reality. So once you identify yourself as a Christian, you already have all these people already thinking things about you. We deserve that in a way. We, not, not, we didn't do it. Some of you might not have even been born when some of these things started happening. But we perpetuate it. We deserve it. But we've got to overcome it. We can't just say, oh, that's just the way it is. It is the way it is that doesn't take away the obligation for us to try to reach out to people. There's a lot of things I don't 100% agree with in Dan Kimball's book, but one of the things he was trying to point out is when he sits in coffee shops and tries to talk to people about Jesus, he starts off with, I know you think Christians are kind of weird and strange. He's admitting one thing that I think we should bring up right now. We're living in a post-Christian culture. It's, that's the term a lot of people are using. We're using, living in a post-Christian culture. Christianity's relevance and centrality to anything is kind of waning, if not already done. So because when you identify yourself as a Christian, you're handed this whole you know, baggage of things that people are going to attribute to you, he finds it best to begin with almost 
an acknowledgement. It's not maybe an apology, but it's kind of an acknowledgement, an anticipation of where the person is. I know you think this is really weird and you don't think that Christians know much, but I'd like to ask your opinion about something. Kind of disarms them a little bit and anticipates what they're already thinking. Yeah. I don't know. The world gets two versions of Christians. We either want nothing to do with them or we're coming straight at them like, convert, repent, like change, or repent, like change your ways, whatever. And I've found that like with all my non-Christian like friends in my world, because there's like a lot of non-Christians in my world, but we have great times, clean times, and like you get to know them and you can interject in conversation and it's so much more natural and they're so much more willing to like accept, I guess, Christian ideas because they're getting that point of view without you like shoving it down their throat. And you build a friendship and they're like, oh, I didn't know Christians could be like this. I thought Christians are what we're talking about now. You need both. We need Christian community for sure. It's commanded in the Bible, but it's a good thing for our souls. It really is. And a lot of us in here naturally enjoy it. It's happening on its own. But we also need to be reaching out. So both of those are true. And the point you made about we're too focused on salvation, we're actually going to get to in a few weeks. But for you, just to get, start thinking about it, 71% of people who come to Christ report that they came to Christ through a relationship with a friend, a family member, a teacher, somebody that brought them into it. The numbers on just going to people, like you said, at them to try to convert them in a street evangelism type way are so low that when we get to that part, there's a, there's a quote I'm going to read to you that's going to shock some of you. I'll, I'll leave that there. Justice, do you have a comment? I'd just like to point out that there are many, many, many non-Christians out there who, to a certain degree, are living maybe even better lifestyles than we are. And the problem, you know, we can't, we can't look at them and say, oh yes, they're non-Christians, so they go party drinking. A lot of them, they don't. They, they say, you know, I don't like that, or like they, they don't want premarital sex or something like that, and they're non-Christians, you know? I just like to point that out. I think that's a great point that's made over and over in the books that we're reading, that we as Christians often have a misperception, but I don't think you guys have a misperception. I think you know, most of us would probably agree with this statement that we probably all know non-Christians that are better than most of our Christian friends. You agree? Yeah. Sounds like there's a lot of agreement on that. And I, I know a number of them that are my own friends. I'm bummed by it. The thing about them, I'm bummed about my Christian friends. That if there are people like this in the world, why can't Christians be more Christ-like? All right, let's move forward a little bit. Don't become like Jonah. Here's some scripture. Jesus praying at the end of his ministry, specifically for the disciples and for the church. John 17, 15, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Jesus specifically prayed that we not be removed from the world, that we not be separate. Remember, he's the one that said, you can be salt and light. We're going to talk about that in a second. Being in the world, but not of the world. We covered that specifically in an earlier series about being in the world and not of it. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world. Matthew 9, 10-12. The disciples were asked, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Now we've used that verse sometimes to imply that everybody who doesn't know Jesus is sick, as if they're defective. This really applies to their spiritual state, let's be clear. Because as we just said, there are people out there 
who are living better lives on their own than many Christians. In fact, one of the things that is going to drive non-Christians crazy as we look at judgment and hypocrisy next week is where are the people that are preaching family values, right? Where are those people all the time? And yet, who has the highest divorce rate in the nation? Christians, right? Like all those examples. Because we seem to let ourselves off the hook so easily. Okay? Let's push on a little bit. Here's a quote I want you to look at. We just talked about being salt and light. So this is for the people when I said we'd come back and talk specifically about some of you think, I'm not in the bubble. Okay, let me address both bubble and non-bubble kids at the same time. Being salt and light demands two things, says Mike Metzger. We practice purity in the midst of a fallen world, and yet we live in proximity to this fallen world. Purity and proximity. Some of you who are in the world saying, I'm not in the bubble. i fully engaged in the world. I'm close to it. I'm in it. That's the proximity. But I want to challenge you on the other part. You also need the purity. Some people are so much in the bubble, that's their way of escaping. And it is escapism. And some people are in the world and they're immersed. I was one of them. I was in the world and I knew Jesus. And I even told people about Jesus. But there wasn't any purity. I was living the same lifestyle with everybody else. You need both. Let me read this if it goes on. If you don't hold up both truths in tension, and I love that he says intention, because there is this tension between being in the world but not being of it, being in close proximity or being in the center of it but being pure at the same time. If you don't hold up both truths in tension, you invariably become useless and separated from the world God loves. For example, if you only practice purity, Apart from proximity to the culture, you inevitably become pietistic, separatist, and conceited if you live in close proximity to the culture. Without also living in a holy manner, you become indistinguishable from the culture and useless in God's kingdom. You remember when he said, if salt loses its saltiness, what is it good for? So if you live in the culture, you live outside the bubble, And you're saying right now, that's me, I'm out there. But you're not pure. You're not set apart. You're not holy. You're not separated in that way. Then you're going to become indistinguishable. And what good are you? You become useless. We have to live in that tension because I know some of you, you're not in the bubble at all. But we need to hold each other up by being pure. That's why we need that community. That's why we need to be together. But not for the sole sake of just kind of like I jokingly say, move to the island and start over, you know, and create our own utopia away from all the crazies of the world and the crazies of Christianity. Because in the end, maybe we're crazy. and We're not pure, and we need to realize that. Let me end with this. In David Kinnaman's book that we've been tracking as well, Unchristian, he finds that intellectuals, and he defines them as those with advanced educational and financial profiles, Intellectuals are more likely than the average person to express resistance and skepticism towards Christianity. That's why I like that this is a thinking group. That's why I like that we really dig into it. Because these people become the leaders of our country. These people become the leaders in business. And this is the place where we find the most resistance to Christianity. Why? Because they think we're not thinking. And the other part, there's so much of that craziness that comes with Christianity. 
Tonight we talked about being sheltered. And I'm going to remind you of this verse that we're going to keep repeating because this is our theme verse for the whole group, 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16. But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord, always be prepared to give an answer. Yeah, to intellectuals. Know your faith well enough to be able to articulate it, sure. To everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Okay. Next week we're going to talk about judgmentalism, hypocrisy, move forward to the other things that we're identified with as we go down the list. If you want to join us on those books that we have, you can pick those up and start reading along with us. Get some more of the background. There's some fascinating research that's being done. Let's pray and wrap up. Lord, we are your church, and we are called to do the things that you left in our care. Open the eyes of your church, Lord. If everything we're saying is not right, show us the truth. In the end, Lord, we don't want to be right. We want to be holy. So we ask in humility that all these things that we're studying would grow in our hearts and would help to catalyze your church from within. Thank you, Lord, for the so many people who are writing, researching, talking, speaking about these subjects as well, trying to transform your church from within. It's long overdue. Pray this in your name.